Coming up on Mayo Clinic Q&A, it's time to ask the Mayo mom. Transgender is an umbrella term used to describe individuals whose gender identity and sex assigned at birth do not align. Today on Ask the Mayo Mom, we'll discuss caring for transgender and gender diverse children and ways parents can support their child. Because it can be anxiety provoking for both the child and the parents to kind of know what to expect. You know, the child wanting to know, am I going to be supported? And the families. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Angela Mackey, and welcome to Ask the Mayo Mom on Mayo Clinic QA. I'm a pediatrician here at Mayo Clinic Children's Center in Rochester, Minnesota, and host of this show about pediatric health topics. Today, we're going to be talking about caring for children. Um, for transgender and gender diverse children and teens. Joining us for this discussion are three members of the Transgender Intersex Specialty Care Clinic at Mayo Clinic Children's Center. Our first guest, Dr. Ida Latif, is a pediatric endocrinologist. Our second guest, Dr. Nicole Imhoff, is a licensed independent clinical social worker. And our third guest, Kate Lay, is an RN and care coordinator in this clinic. And I'm really excited to have them joining us today. Dr. Latif, Nicole, Kate, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Dr. Matthew. Thank you. Thank you. I think this will be a great discussion. We're going to cover a lot of things from whether it's behavioral health to talking about medical care um, for gender diverse children. So I think we need to really start the discussion by understanding, you know, what is gender and, and what is gender diversity? Um, one of my favorite things, and I, I think you guys also use it a lot in your clinic, is, is using the gender unicorn to help facilitate this discussion. So Nicole, can you tell us a little bit more about gender and gender diversity? Sure, yeah, I'll start out with just kind of basically going over what does it mean to be transgender. So transgender is an umbrella term used to describe individuals whose gender identity um, and sex assigned at birth do not align. Um, so people who are transgender may or may not experience gender dysphoria, which we'll talk about um, a little later. Um, so um, on the gender unicorn, um, we can see that there's the green dots uh, explain what gender expression is, um, which gets talked a lot about in, at the same time as gender identity, but they're two separate things. Uh, so gender expression refers to the way in which a person expresses their gender within a given culture. For example, through clothing, communication patterns, mannerisms, and interests. Everyone has a gender expression. I like to point that out. It's not just LGBTQ individuals. Uh, and as you can see on the gender unicorn, uh, your gender identity is what's in the thought bubble represented by a rainbow. Um, so we just want to keep in mind that gender expression is separate from gender identity. So someone can have a more feminine gender expression and identify as a man, for example. Gender identity, it's not just a thought bubble. Um, it's someone's in individual basic sense of being a man or boy, woman or girl, neither, both, or another gender. Uh, so that's why it's represented by this kind of internal sense of who you are and what your gender identity is. That's fantastic. And can you talk a little bit more about maybe people tend to um, conflate or, or get confused gender and maybe who we're attracted to. Um, can you talk a little bit about that as well? Sure. Um, so as we can see on the gender unicorn, uh, physical and emotional attraction is represented by the orange and red hearts. So someone's gender identity has nothing to do with their sexual orientation, 
uh, other than if they're if they identify as female and they are attracted to females, we would typically call them a lesbian. That that's one example. But uh, someone being transgender does not change what their sexual orientation is. If you identified as as attracted to women before you transitioned, your sexual orientation will shift a little because we're going to be looking at it based on how you identify and who you're attracted to, but uh, it doesn't automatically mean that someone who's transgender would identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual. Excellent. I think that's really, really helpful. Um, so what does it mean to be transgender or non-binary or genderqueer? Can you talk a little bit more about those? Yeah. So there's a lot of definitions. Mm -hmm. uh, if you ask someone what that means for them, you may get many different answers. Yeah. So again, transgender is an umbrella term. Some people have non-binary included under that umbrella term. Some people don't identify as transgender that are non-binary. Uh, but again, transgender is your when your gender identity, gender expression, and behavior does not follow mainstream society's expectation for your sex, your sex assigned at birth. So non-binary is a can also be another umbrella term. Uh, you may hear uh, teens identifying as agender, gender queer, gender fluid. Those terms typically, I think of them as being underneath that non-binary umbrella. So people who are non-binary uh, do not exclusively identify as man or boy, woman or girl. They may identify as both in between or somewhere outside of those categories entirely. Uh, and again, it can be that umbrella term that includes genderqueer. Uh, genderqueer, is a, I think of that as a little more fluid, although some people use it interchangeably with the term non-binary. Uh, we kind of use it interchangeably in our chart because there's only so many categories you may see in EPIC. Um, but people who are Gender queer may identify as both in between or somewhere outside those binary categories as well. Okay. Another term that we use a lot and that people might not be as familiar with um, if they're not within the medical community is gender dysphoria. What is that? And, and can you explain a little bit more about it? Sure. Uh, so I, you know, I, it's technically it's a diagnosis in the DSM-5, which mm -hmm. behavioral health professionals use to diagnose but I really like to push back on thinking of it as this medicalized term, even though of course we are in the medical field. Uh, not all people who are transgender experience gender dysphoria. So that's something to consider uh, or they experience gender dysphoria about different things. They, it's not a one size fits all experience. Mm -hmm. But the most basic way to explain gender dysphoria is that it's the distress that results from when someone's sex assigned at birth and gender identity are not aligned or incongruent. Uh, so we're treating the distress that occurs, not the fact that someone identifies as transgender or non-binary. Mm -hmm. does, does gender dysphoria tend to happen more when people are not receiving like gender affirming care or gender affirming support? I would say, uh, yes and no. Uh, okay. I think so. One thing I talk a lot with our patients about is there's there's physical and anatomic dysphoria, and then there's social dysphoria. Mm -hmm. So I think when people are not receiving affirmation with pronouns, name, 
things like that, that can increase the feelings of gender dysphoria. But uh, the, where we start out is asking about things like gender stereotypes or gender roles or things that happen during puberty that can mm -hmm. also increase dysphoria just in general if you are transgender or non-binary. Mm -hmm. So tell me um, about maybe some of like the health effects um, or behavioral health uh, consequences you that you might see associated with gender dysphoria. Right. So we know that um, family support has many positive benefits for the mental health of transgender and LGB youth. Uh, so, for example, a 2013 survey showed that transgender youth whose parents were described as very supportive of their identity were less likely to experience depressive symptoms, consider suicide, or attempt suicide. Mm -hmm. I know these are really scary things that parents yeah. think about uh, when their child comes out to them, but the good news is we know that support has an impact on that. A 2011 survey also showed that transgender individuals who had supportive family were less likely to use drugs or alcohol as a coping mechanism, smoke, attempt suicide, engage in sex work to survive, be incarcerated, or experience homelessness. So it's it's pretty stark the differences that um, that happen for our transgender and LGB youth when their parents are supportive of them. Mm -hmm. You know, when we, when we say the word youth, um, that can mean a lot of things. It can be anything from young children to, to adolescents to young adults. Um, but one question that I've heard um, parents bring up to me in the office is, is how young do children, can they start feeling or do they start feeling um, that the gender dysphoria um, or when they may realize that they might be transgender and not uh, like cisgender that was typically assigned to them? Right, this comes up a lot. Uh, as well in our clinic. Uh, so some experience gender dysphoria in childhood and others experience gender dysphoria at the onset of puberty or adolescence. So even I work with pediatric patients and adults, even when I'm talking to adults uh, about their experiences, pretty typically we can see it either happening in childhood or when puberty starts. Okay. For others, it may be different. Mm -hmm. When someone experiences gender dysphoria does not make them any more or less trans. I, I get this question a lot from parents who <laughs> children start to experience gender dysphoria at the onset of puberty mm -hmm. because so much of what we see in the media focuses on a, a four-year-old who's telling their parents that mm. they don't identify as their sex assigned at birth. Mm -hmm. um, but what we do know is that children become more aware of gendered stereotypes regardless of their gender identity around age four or five. So mm -hmm. um, typically that's the youngest, uh, at least that I've seen in our clinic. Okay, that's really helpful. Um, so Dr. Latif, um, I want to like now move our discussion to talking about really the medical care for, for trans children. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about um, what, what would be typical in a, a prepubertal child presenting to your office versus a postpubertal child presenting um, to your clinic? I mean, I, I, I think uh, the role of Nicole and the behavioral health team is certainly more important than my role in prepubertal kids, because in prepubertal kids, there's really no medication that I would give um, uh, to, that I would give to them. So really, I do monitor and follow these kids just to make sure, because sometimes when I see them at age seven or eight or nine or 10, they're 
close to getting into puberty. So we want to make sure that, you know, we're guiding them through that process, but we never give any medication or puberty blockers for kids who are not yet in puberty. And again, it doesn't mean that we have to, but this is, uh, I think that transition or between around age nine, 10 is where my role, I think, becomes a little bit more obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might, it, it's probably not obvious to, to most people in why you wouldn't give medications to a prepubertal kid versus a pubertal child. Can you talk a little bit more about that? So from my standpoint, when we talk about using puberty blockers, those are medications that are used to halt puberty, meaning we use them to, you know, put a put a halt on puberty. If they're stopped, puberty would resume. Mm-hmm. So we're not going to halt something that is not there. Okay. Um, you know, it, it doesn't make sense. We should not do it. And even sometimes if we see kids who are in uh, puberty, it doesn't mean that we have to stop it. It really depends on what they're experiencing, the dysphoria. So anytime we're trying to use medication or we're thinking about medication, we have to sit down with a child and say, what is, you know, what is bothersome? You know, what are we trying to achieve? Because we also talk about the positives, but we talk about the, you know, the side effects of all the medications that we have to use. But, you know, we, we cannot halt puberty when it's not there. And we don't necessarily have to do it. It's really, we have to individualize therapy depending on the child's need. Okay. In that pre-pubertal age, you know, you mentioned the behavioral health um, and family support is really critical. So maybe Nicole can tell us a little bit about this. Some children might choose to have uh, like a social transition at this age. Um, can you talk a little bit how this could be done and, and who should be involved in, in supporting um, the child through this process and, and decision-making? Sure. And I will say that I, I just wanted to say that Dr. Latif, you are really important at this stage, even though you're not prescribing medication because with behavioral health, you exist as something that's in the future and very much important in their kind of conceptualizing their transition. So you're still important even before. <laughs> um, but yeah, so social transition, it is what it sounds like. So it's the social aspect of the transition, kind of like what I was saying earlier, there's sort of the anatomic dysphoria and then there's social dysphoria. So I like to think of social transition as uh, kind of addressing that social dysphoria. So it may mean coming out to family, friends, teachers, often coming out more than once because typically children or teens are coming out to their to their family first um, or sometimes friends. Uh, so aspects of social transition will include using a firm name and pronouns, expressing one's gender authentically, like with clothing, hairstyle, jewelry, makeup, things like that, using bathrooms that affirm one's gender, eventually legally changing one's name or gender marker if desired or both, uh, and basically just living one's authentic gender identity in every aspect of their life. And I say when safe to do so. Mm-hmm. So if for some reason, uh, a child is at a school that they're not feeling comfortable in, that that may just be part of that ongoing process. It might not happen all at once. Um, So of course, if if your child's coming out to you, you're like, okay, how am I going to support them at school? 
So I always recommend meeting with school staff, like the principal, guidance counselor, social worker, um, psychologist, teachers to make a social transition plan. Uh, so who can your child go to if they're having a hard day, if somebody's not using the right pronouns or they're experiencing some bullying. Um, thankfully, um, most school districts are able to change a child's name in the system without a legal name change. So um, that will be, that's usually part of the transition plan is that maybe in the beginning of the school year, we're gonna make sure all of the name, names are changed and for all the teachers. Um, and then just, yeah, making that plan for your child to have support people. If there's a GSA, um, usually Gender Sexuality Alliance or LGBT group at school, Obviously, if they're younger, that might not be an option. Uh, and then in Minnesota, there's actually a toolkit from the Department of Education that can provide schools with guidance on how to support their transgender students. Um, and at the same time, if they're a public school with state funding, they are expected to actually uphold a lot of those uh, recommendations to make it a safe place for, for children and teens to transition at school. Okay, that's really, really helpful. So let's talk a little bit. So we've talked about like the prepubertal children. Let's move on to talk to, about the children who are maybe uh, are in puberty or in the middle of puberty who may be experiencing um, gender dysphoria. Um, what would be um, the discussions that you would be having in the office uh, with these with these adolescents, Dr. Latif? So, you know, what I usually what I usually do is talk to them about what that medication is and talk to the parents about that as well, because, you know, we don't want to have the misconception that we're using something that, um, you know, we can never stop or um, so this is very important to talk about what the medication does, what the side effects and whether there would be a benefit in some patients, there would be a benefit in waiting a little bit more. Mm -hmm. um, so this is kind of the discussion that we have. And then we talk about the follow up. If we were to start those medications in order to monitor for the side effects, because what we all need to remember is, you know, we do need longer term studies about the very, very long term effects about any medication that we use. So when we want to treat somebody, we need to make sure that they're aware of, you know, what we're doing, what we're achieving, and what we need to look for. So basically, we talk to them about what's going to happen with the medication, what are the things that we're going to watch for, and what is the treatment plan moving forward, so they know what the expectations are. And this is actually where Kate's, you know, role is super important as well, because she can help with that coordination, you know, to make sure that no medication is started without any strict follow up from our standpoint. Okay, so you're talking specifically about maybe puberty blockers first. Is that the yes. first discussion? Okay, yes. Does the discussion ever involve hormone or hormone like replacements? Yes, it depends on where the kids are at. I mean, if we have an 11 year old who is just starting puberty, I think the discussion will focus more on puberty blockers. If we have an older kid, um, you know, who has gone through puberty, it's not that we cannot use puberty blockers, but again, you know, if we have a 15 year old and we sit with them and say, what is causing the dysphoria? And we feel that the puberty blockers are not gonna help mm -hmm. with 
you know, with uh, what they're experiencing, then I think the discussion about what, what we need to use has to shift to potentially, you know, hormone therapy or so... I think in younger kids, the discussion is more puberty blockers in the older kids, not that we cannot use puberty blockers, but if they're not going to help with what we're trying to achieve, then I think the shift there, there has to be a shift and we need to talk about other, you know, either medications or, um, you know, behavioral uh, therapy Mm -hmm. as well. Absolutely. You mentioned, um, you know, really long-term research, but I imagine there's got to be some research in the kind of maybe short-term or um, shorter-term follow-up regarding um, maybe how either social transitions or or some of the medical transitions, like you talked about with puberty blockers and whatnot, um, and how they affect children. Can you share a little bit about that research? So the puberty blockers, uh, we do know that there are some studies that show that they decrease suicidality uh, rates. So this is a, you know, very positive. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't necessarily lessen the dysphoria significantly because we need to remember we're not, you know, inducing changes that they necessarily want, but Mm -hmm. they do decrease anxiety scores and they, you know, improve, um, you know, well-being scores as well. Um, you know, as far as the long-term side effects, we always worry about bone health. So mm-hmm. we are very careful, you know, to follow bone health, um, you know, prior to starting and after, um, you know, we, we also, you know, talk to them about, you know, what happens to brain development and, and, and using puberty blockers. So mm-hmm. when use, we, we use those medications, the parents are well aware of, you know, what we are going to achieve and what are the things that are still unknown to us mm-hmm. and where we, lo- we really need the long-term, you know, data. Mm-hmm. But in, in general, those are reversible. We could, you know, we could stop them um, and then have puberty start again if there is a need. Mm-hmm. Can you just real quickly define what exactly puberty blockers do? I think you've said a little bit about it, but just kind of basic knowledge of understanding for the audience. So uh, in simple terms, when puberty starts, the, you know, the hormones such as estrogen and testosterone start going up. Mm -hmm. And when we use those puberty blockers, we kind of turn off the function of the pituitary gland, which is the gland that stimulates or basically initiate puberty. Mm -hmm. So we kind of, you know, turn off those hormones. And as the result, the testosterone and the estrogen levels would go down. So if we use those agents in an early stage of puberty, then we, you know, we prevent progression uh, of puberty, such as, you know, more breast development, or, you know, changes in, in, in the genitalia, voice changes, Adam's apple, uh, you know, development of uh, facial hair, uh, all of those things, we can pretty much put a stop to them. Okay. And that's beneficial because it gives them time or tell us about like why, why that would be beneficial for um, the, these children experiencing gender dysphoria. So, so uh, for example, when I sit with a 12 year old mm-hmm. and I ask, you know, 
what are you scared of? What mm -hmm. are we, what is bothersome? As okay. facial hair starts and as the voice starts to crack, and it, as an example, this can cause significant dysphoria. Mm -hmm. So if we use puberty blockers at the right time, we can avoid those changes from, you know, um, mm -hmm. uh, uh, progressing. And we can certainly give you know, children and their families as well, their parents to, you know, work on things and, and assert themselves, because, mm -hmm. you know, we always need to remember the parents as well, that, you know, sometimes this is something new to them, and we mm -hmm. need to educate them sometimes more than educate their kids, actually, because the kids usually have done a lot of research. Mm -hmm. So this is something that is extremely important. And again, depending on when puberty is stopped, you know, we can avoid, uh, you know, future need for surgeries. Um, uh, so, so it, it's, it, it, it really depends on when we start, what are the changes that we're trying to uh, prevent? And that's how we decide when and what to use. That's, you know, you brought up a really good point. And Kate, I'd love to hear um, what your thoughts are on this and Nicole as well um, is, you know, how do we help support families? Um, because they're, they're going through this transition as well. Um, and then um, I have some more questions about this too. Nicole, I don't know if you want to jump in with that too, since you're kind of one of the first people that really help these individuals. Sure. Yeah, I, I think uh having our clinic as a resource we're so lucky um in our region to have a clinic that that treats children and teens for gender dysphoria uh, it can be a starting point for your child to begin to explore gender identity if they're just questioning and it's also so much of what we do is also like supporting the parent as well um, for example my consultations for under 18 are two hours long because I start out with everyone together, then I meet with the child, then I meet with the parents alone, then we all come back together and kind of talk about what, what the next steps are and what the plan is because parents need support as well. Uh, as a clinical social worker, uh, a lot of what I do is um, providing gender explorative therapy and also guiding parents and how they can support that exploration. So again, names, pronouns, clothing, help with social transition, making a plan. Um, so, but Kate is actually the first person that typically our uh, families connect with. Uh, and then we work together to provide resources uh, as well um, while families are waiting to get in to see us. Hey, can you share a little bit about like what your role is um, in the clinic and how you help support um, this this child's journey um, and their family as well? Yeah, so a lot of the times when a individual starts coming to our clinic, the first person they generally speak to is one of our schedulers who kind of helps get them set up, you know, of, of meeting the people they need to see. One of those first visits is generally a phone visit that happens with me. Um, I generally tell families to plan on that visit, you know, being about 20 to 30 minutes. Um, most of the time the visits are completed with both the child as well as at least one parent. Um, but sometimes I get, you know, just the child and sometimes just the parent, depending on kind of where everybody is in their how comfortable they are kind of exploring gender. Um, and sometimes supporting parents and supporting the kids is really just kind of 
trying to meet both people where they're at and kind of mm-hmm. going through the process. Um, I always start out with, you know, asking, you know, what's the name you'd like me to use and what pronouns would you like me to use? Um, as well as being respectful that that might not always be what the child wants me to use, might not be what the parent wants to use or chooses to use themselves. Um, so I generally talk to them, you know, I will generally through the phone call say, I'm going to use they, them pronouns to um, respect kind of where both people are at to kind of where they're moving through things. So sometimes it's just the small things using to support those parents um, as they're kind of moving forward with their child and kind of helping them be supportive. Um, That first phone call is just kind of, you know, find out where everybody's at, you know, have they started the social transition yet? And if not, Mm -hmm. you know, little things we can do to kind of help if they want to move along that process. Um, Also starting to gather a little bit of more information as to what their goals might be of coming to our clinic. Um, Some people come in, you know, to our clinic, having done a lot of research and kind of knowing exactly what they want. I want X sort of medical intervention. Um, Whereas some people come in and saying, you know, I really don't know. We're at the beginning of this journey and kind of supporting them from there being like, we're going to work with both you as the parent and the child to really find out how they want to express their gender and really talking a lot about for some people that is medical interventions. And if that's Mm -hmm. what they desire, um, you know, kind of talking more about when that might take place and kind of the process for that. But also talking about for some people, it doesn't include medical interventions. And, you know, that's okay, too. Um, And some of the other services, you know, we do have voice therapy and some other therapies that don't include medical interventions. So kind of helping the families know what to expect with coming to the clinic as well. Mm -hmm. So and when things might happen, you know, if we're seeing a very young child, you know, it might be a little bit before we can start medical interventions. Whereas if we have an, you know, an older individual who is expressing that they want surgery or something kind of saying when that might happen within our program as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So just kind of setting some expectations to kind of help everybody feel more comfortable with coming Um, because it can be anxiety provoking for both the child um, and the parents to kind of know what to expect. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the child wanting to know, am I going to be supported? Um, And the families feeling that, you know, if they're still processing um, this transition for their child, you know, that we're not going to automatically be starting things or forcing treatments upon them, that we're really just here to support both the child and the family with kind of where mm-hmm. they're at and help them move forward with the goals that they want to achieve. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really helpful. You know, we're nearing the end of our time. So I want to talk about resources um, for, for families um, and for youth and teens. Um, we had a group couple of great audience questions come in. And one of them is about how an educator can help support um, a child who has undergone a social transition um, in their classroom and create a really nurturing environment for them. So um, kind of, I, I guess, kind of depends on the age mm-hmm. uh, and thinking about what resources I would recommend, but there are so many books out there, whether they're picture books for elementary school age children to young adult fiction, kind of like including that in your classroom, celebrating LGBTQ identities, creating a space that's welcoming. I see, I think there's a rainbow flag behind you. Um, So just little signals like that, even like putting out flags, but rainbow flag or, or transgender flag. Uh, just kind of little things like that. Uh, our patients take that very seriously. Like they're like, wow, okay, this is signaling to me that this is a safe space. I know I'm not wearing my badge, but you know, wearing 
pronoun pins, things like that signal that you're a safe, safe person or a safe educator for uh, students to go to. Um, while, so if, if a child is transitioning in your classroom, like starting to use different name and pronouns, maybe having a conversation with the larger class uh, as well to kind of set expectations that we're gonna be using pronouns and name and we can ask questions, but we need to be respectful, things like that. Okay, that's really helpful. What resources, you mentioned some books, are there any other resources for, um, for families, for communities, um, for children and youth um, that you would recommend? Yeah, so depending on where you live, there, there are typically support groups for parents and for LGBTQ youth. Um, there's also lots of online support groups as well. I have a extremely long, long list of <laughs> books and resources, but yeah. the three things that I usually start out with for parents and, and children or teens is, well, so all teens that come to our clinic get this gender quest workbook um, by uh, Deborah Coolhart and Rylan J. Testa. So that's that's one resource we give. This is, this is a gender exploration workbook. Uh, it has different chapters focused on coming out to family, friends, coming out at school, thinking about your, your journey. Mm -hmm. uh, and then for, for parents, um, there's two books. Um, one is The Transgender Child. Uh, and one is the transgender teen uh, or non transgender and non-binary teen. Um, they're both by Stephanie Brill. Uh, so those are two that are a good starting point for parents uh, that I definitely recommend. Excellent. That's great. Well, thank you all um, for joining us today. This was a, a great discussion. Um, I know it was very informative for me. Have a great day, everyone. Remember to get your, your COVID-19 vaccine, your influenza vaccine, and thanks everyone. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org, then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.